Well, hello there, wonderful teachers. I want to invite you to an event we're doing this summer. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio, so you have to be able to make it there, but it might be worth traveling for if you're able to. It's happening on July 20th and 21st, so that's over a weekend, and it's going to be the best two days for teachers. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to learn a lot about pedagogy and creative teaching and business. We have two fabulous guest speakers and we're even going to finish with an optional Kaylee. That's an Irish dancing party. So I hope you'll be able to join me. Just go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo that's dot com slash t-u-r-b-o 24 the numbers two four. I hope you'll check it out view all the details there and I hope to see you in Cincinnati in July. On with the episode. Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for music, music teachers. This is episode 74 of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and this is the third episode in a series about the essential ingredients of well balanced music lessons. Hey there, beautiful teachers. Welcome back to this series about creating holistic musicians through well-balanced music lessons that cover everything that's, well, essential. If you haven't checked out the first two episodes in this series, I highly suggest that you go back. So if you're brand new to the podcast or you just missed over those, didn't catch those ones, then you're going to want to go back to episode 72 and really listen to these seven as a series because they're leading somewhere and it just makes more sense if you've listened to the previous one. So the first one is episode 72. You can go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash 72. That's the numbers, 72, to access that episode and take it from there because there I go into more about why we're doing this series and what it's all about. Last week in this series, we talked about ear training. And in the first week, we talked about reading. The essential ingredient I want to share with you today is technique. And by technique, I do not mean technical work. So let me start by just defining the difference between those two in my mind. Technique is about how you play. No matter what your instrument is, it's about how you physically play that instrument or use your voice. And technical work is exercise. And they are not the same thing, although certainly in my own lessons and in many, we refer to stuff like scales as technique or technique work. I make the distinction that it's technical work because it doesn't teach us technique. I can play scales whatever way I want to. I can play them with the most horrendous technique, even with the correct fingering. I can do that, I promise you. Anyone can. So scales do not teach technique. They're often used as a way to practice technique, but you need to have that technique in place before you can do that, right? So when I talk about teaching technique, I'm talking about teaching the actual ways that we move, the different gestures that we have, our posture, and all of that stuff, not just scales. So why is it important then? Why do we need to teach this? Well, many of us say, and I've heard this from many teachers, and I've certainly said it myself, that we're not necessarily in the business of teaching concert pianists or concert musicians who perform at a really high level. Maybe you are, but even if you say that you're not, that's perfectly fine. You can be in the business of teaching musicians who play at any level 
even if it's just for their own enjoyment, always. But even if that's not your focus, you don't want to be putting them in a position where if they do want to go on and become a concert pianist or whatever their ambitions may be, that they're actually being held back by the technique that we're teaching them. So while we may say, oh, well, you know, they're never going to, most of my students are never going to play any sonatas, we don't actually want to be preventing them from being able to play sonatas. We don't want to be putting them in a position where they would have to go back and relearn how to play and do some in-depth training to unlearn mistakes that they have in place because we were irresponsible in how we taught their technique. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is even if they aren't going to go on to do anything like that, with poor technique, you can't play everything you want to play. You just can't. Even if that is Beatles arrangements, some part of it is going to come up with a roadblock for you if your technique is not where it should be. If you're not using efficient and effective technique in your playing, then, you know, you just won't be able to play things as quickly as you should be able to, or as you want to, or you're not going to be able to do particular grace notes or particular ornaments, anything that comes up. It could be a variety of things. But depending on your technique, you may or may not be able to do those things. And you should be able to do any of them that you wish to with enough practice, except perhaps certain hand spans. Although, if you have a smaller piano that's built for smaller hands, then you could achieve those things as well. The other reason, and the huge one when it comes to technique, is if you're a teacher that is not focusing on this in the beginning and is leaving it till later on, you may... You may not, you may get lucky, but you could be responsible for an injury. It can happen. If someone is playing with a lot of tension, with poor technique habits, and they're a good practicer and they're determined to learn something, they might just bash through something in a way that harms their hands or their arms or their shoulder or whatever is applicable. They might hurt themselves. They really might. Playing an instrument is a physical thing. They may be micro-movements most of the time, but it is a physical process and it is possible to hurt yourself. So we want to do our best to prevent future injury, to allow students to play whatever they want at whatever level they want to in the future. That's why we need to teach really good technique. What does it mean to teach technique then? I've gone into a bit about what I see as the difference between this and technical work. But for me, technique is about teaching students how they're moving and depending on their age and level, why they're moving in that way. Because most of the time it's to produce a certain sound. I was going to come up with an or though, but no, most of the time it's to produce a certain sound, right? That's why we move in the way that we move. So just telling them you must do it this way, you must move that way, you must lift your wrist here, they should know why. Even young students can understand that. And you can demonstrate the difference between the two sounds And eventually they'll start to pick up on those, even if in the beginning they can't quite hear it. A good example of this in piano is the two-note slur, which is why I was talking about my wrist. Some students, when I demonstrate the difference between lifting straight off with my whole arm after two notes and lifting from my wrist so that the note basically gradually dies away, that's what we're achieving. Some students pick up on that right away. Some students will need to be trained to listen for that over time. And they'll have to trust in my judgment in the beginning of whether they're doing it or not. But we should be having that discussion with them so that they know why 
I want them to lift their wrist instead of their whole arm. Just as a small example, everything along the way should have some form of explanation appropriate to the student's age and level. Technique is about how you're moving and why. It's also about making sure that students are free from unnecessary tension, that they're not scrunching up their shoulders or bowing their head forward in some way that causes tension in some other part of their body, that we're not causing unnecessary aches and pains through the way that they're sitting or the way that they're moving or standing, I should say, for other instruments, right? It's also about playing from a position of strength. And this is a big part of what posture is, sitting at a piano. When we talk about having our wrists and elbows in line with our knuckles, so we're creating a line straight across there, basically, parallel to the floor. That's usually what we talk about as a sort of starting posture for piano playing. And when we talk about that, really what we're doing is creating a position of strength. That's how I see it anyway, because when you're in that position and if people have specific physio or medical training, they can correct me if I'm wrong here. But as I understand it, that means that your tendons are at their maximum slack, let's say. So if you have an elastic band inside your arm, it's at the least stretched if you have that as a straight line. If you bend the wrist in the middle, you're creating a stretch in that elastic band. And if you lift it up, you're doing the same thing. So that's why we start from there, because that gives us the most possible strength and flexibility and movement and freedom. Great technique also means that students are able to produce the sounds that they want to produce. I talked about that a little bit earlier. That's the basics of it, because that's what it's all for. Go back to last week's episode about oral work or ear training. Music is sound. So yes, we can isolate these little movements and do exercises to work on them. But we need to keep coming back to that sound. Because otherwise, what's it all for? What are we doing if not trying to produce specific sounds, right? So great technique enables students to produce the sounds that they want to produce. Now I'll go into a little bit about the specifics of how I approach technique with piano because that's the instrument that I teach. For me, with piano, non-legato is best at first. And I didn't always teach this way, but I strongly believe in it now through years of experimenting with my students, following the work of people like Irina Gorin and Julie Nair and Catherine Fisher from Piano Safari and others, that it's best to teach non-legato and one finger in the beginning. So using literally just one finger, hopping from key to key, so that you can feel how your arm moves. This is basically because we're starting, therefore, with the big movement, so that they can do those with freedom, before talking about these little movements. And I've found that the students that I've taught in this way, as the years go by, I can see a marked difference between those and the students who began with me before I started teaching this way, or who transferred to me from another teacher, who play with so much more tension who don't have that strong hand shape, who have much more of a tendency to have collapsing knuckle joints and a myriad of other problems because they don't start with that bigger movement, moving the arm around, and then develop that into legato gradually over time as needed and then staccato and all of this. But for me, that's where I started from. That's the foundation of how I teach piano technique and it has made a big difference for me. If you're teaching another instrument, of course, It'll depend on the instrument. But I would come back to that idea of moving from a position of strength and feeling free to move around and free of tension. If you have those things in most instruments, 
you're doing well and follow advice and do your research about the best possible approaches to achieve those things. Once you have all of these things, you can talk about scales and technical exercises, but they have to be done with that technique in place, which is why I don't begin with them right away with any student. And I wait until students are successfully playing legato in a way where I can see they're moving with freedom and playing with a beautiful tone and not creating tension in any part of their body while they do it. So then we can layer on the scales and we can do these different things. But I see scales really as a more of a, yes, they are training the students for those patterns, but they, I do so much more with scales than just that. And you can check out other blog posts I've written and other episodes of the podcast. We'll leave some links in the show notes with more of how I teach scales and what my philosophy is on them at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash 74 for episode 74. I hope you've been enjoying this exploration of the essential elements of music teaching, of great music lessons that are well-balanced and holistic. This was number three, so we've got three more to go, and then we've got the wrap-up episode where we're going to bring it all together in terms of how you can actually fit all this stuff into your lessons. We're continuing with the categories next week. And we're going to be talking about theory work, music theory, how you teach it, why we teach it, why it's essential in lessons. I hope you'll join me then for episode 75 of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. Bye for now. If you want to hear more about my approach to scales and how I use improvisation to teach scales and chords, you can find some great resources for that in the video library in Vibrant Music Teaching. If you're not a member yet, you can sign up at vmt.ninja and get access to everything today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I hope you loved it and I wanted to pop on here one more time to remind you about our event. It's happening in Cincinnati this July and you can get all the details at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo. See you there.